The video lasts only about five seconds. The screen is pitch black before red wisps start forming. The glow illuminates the space as it gets brighter. That might sound like white noise, but it is in fact the sound of the future. A thin white ring fringed in red forms at the base of what looks like a huge futuristic metal donut. The light thrown up the walls is pink. The glow increases as the whole space is illuminated in white light and the camera cuts out. On February 9th, 2022, a team of scientists at the Jet Laboratory in England announced a major step forwards to making what some hope will be the energy source of the future. Nuclear fusion offers the hope of producing near-limitless supplies of safe, clean energy to power our homes, workplaces and cities. Nuclear fusion is, however, also one of the greatest engineering and scientific conundrums that we have ever undertaken. It took decades of research to get to that five-second test at the Jet Laboratory, and there is still a long road ahead. But those leading the quest are hugely excited by what they saw. This is Beyond the Headlines, I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week we ask, will nuclear fusion save mankind? First, if you want to get every episode of Beyond the Headlines as soon as it comes out, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app now. And our mini-series, The Blast, just won the AVA Digital Media Awards. The link to that will be in the show notes. Humanity is facing potentially catastrophic man-made climate change. Over the last roughly 200 years, we have been releasing huge amounts of carbon dioxide into the air by burning fossil fuels like coal, oil and gas. And that is causing long-term sustained rise in average temperatures. Countries are committing to drastically cut their CO2 emissions, transition to alternative power sources and end a reliance on fossil fuels by the middle of the century in a bid to avert the worst impacts of climate change. There's a drive for wind, solar, geothermal and hydroelectricity in a bid to wean power grids off coal, gas and oil energy. But there needs to be a huge revolution in how we generate electricity if we want to replace hydrocarbons entirely. And experts say that in that arsenal of alternatives, there has to be nuclear power, because of its potential to generate vast amounts of electricity, very efficiently and with almost no CO2 emissions. Nuclear power has been around for decades, Today, around 10% of the world's energy comes from nuclear. But those power stations are run on what's called nuclear fission. Here's Dr. Mark Wenman, the director of the Centre of Doctoral Training in Nuclear Energy Futures at Imperial College London, to explain the difference between fusion and fission. The nuclear energy we have today is something called nuclear fission, and fission means to split atoms. And so for decades now, for over 50 years, we've been splitting uranium atoms and you can get energy out of splitting heavy atoms. This is different because what we're doing is fusing together light atoms and hence its name, nuclear fusion. So in its simplest explanation, fission is about splitting large atoms like uranium and plutonium to release energy. Fusion, on the other hand, is about forcing together atoms of hydrogen. So what's wrong with fission that people like Dr. Wenman are spending their lives trying to unlock the secrets of fusion? Well, nuclear fission's great, 
but it does produce radioactive waste. And that radioactive waste is fairly long-lived. It can live for more than 100,000 years, and you have to deal with that. Nuclear fusion, by fusing basically heavy hydrogen atoms, doesn't produce that level of waste. It produces a little bit, but it will be dealt with in, in 100 or 200 years, and that's, that's all. And the actual waste is not very radioactive compared to what you can produce in nuclear fission fuel. While the fission process is generally safe when correctly operated and managed, there are still risks. The Chernobyl nuclear disaster in modern-day Ukraine in 1986 is perhaps the most famous case of a nuclear meltdown. Radioactive material was spewed across hundreds of miles of farmland, towns, countrysides and blown in the wind thousands of miles away. Whole cities were evacuated and to this day there's a large exclusion zone around the site. As well as meltdowns, the technology for nuclear fission can also be used to create nuclear bombs. There's a global non-proliferation agreement that 191 states have signed up to that says those without nuclear weapons will never try to build them, and those that have them have agreed to share the technology to safely make nuclear power, but also endeavour to eliminate their nuclear arsenals. But some states, however, are still building nuclear weapons. North Korea, for example, has an advanced nuclear program. Iran, too, appears to be trying, despite insisting that their nuclear program is entirely peaceful. Nuclear fusion, on the other hand, has no such dual military use. So nuclear fusion, it does produce small amounts of radioactive waste, but it's lower level than what we produce in nuclear fission, and it only lasts for a few hundred years. And we can happily store things for a few hundred years. We have buildings all over the world that are are more than a few hundred years old. We can look after those. It's a different proposition to storing nuclear waste for 100,000 years, which obviously civilization has never reached. You know, we're only 10,000 plus years old. So yes, that's a problem that effectively fusion removes. The other problem is safety of accidents. And again, nuclear fusion, um, it's different from nuclear fission. Nuclear fission reactions continue due to decay processes, radioactive decay processes, after you turn the reactor off. Nuclear fusion, that doesn't happen because as soon as you stop pumping in the hydrogen fuel or the energy to, to keep it sustained, the reaction just turns itself off and that's done. So the safety issues are completely different from nuclear fission. But nuclear fission does have one clear-cut advantage over nuclear fusion. It's here and it's generating electricity now. Fusion is not. So beyond that five-second test at the jet lab, how can we be sure that nuclear fusion really works on a large scale? Well, that's largely because we have a really, really big nuclear fusion reactor not too far away. It's the sun. Here's Dr. Wenman to explain. So the sun literally is made up of of hydrogen gas. And because of the huge mass that's contained in the sun, the sun's gravity compresses that hydrogen gas and allows the nuclei, the centres of those hydrogen atoms, to overcome the positive charges which repel themselves and fuse them together. And, And when you do that, you use Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared. E stands for energy, m is the mass, and c is the speed of light squared. And speed of light is a very big number. You square it. And what that tells you is that you get a huge amount of energy out if you can convert mass into energy. And they are interchangeable. So what you're doing is as you fuse the two hydrogen atoms together, the mass is changing and that's being released as a huge amount of energy. And that's the basis of nuclear fusion. 
Remember that the sun's gravitational pull is so great that it keeps all eight planets in our solar system orbiting around it. That same gravity compresses the atoms of hydrogen, heating them and fusing them together to make helium. In this process, as Einstein's famous theory states, it releases energy. That's what we feel in heat and see in the light. So we can see nuclear fusion working every single day. The challenge for us is how to replicate that here on Earth, where we don't have huge bundles of gas and huge amounts of gravity. And scientists have come up with ways to replicate some of those conditions needed for fusion. So for that, they need a few things. One of those is a mixture of super-hot hydrogen atoms and other elements that effectively make up the fuel. This they call the plasma. The other is somewhere to do the reaction. This is the large metal donut from the video that we talked about at the start. They call that the tokamak. Here's Dr. Ambrosio Fasoli, the chair of the Eurofusion Consortium that's leading the research into the new energy source. He's explaining how the tokamak works. A tokamak is a device which is like a cage to trap plasma, which is the matter that will uh, produce fusion energy. Just like a small star, if you like. But of course, the stars work on gravitation, so they have a huge mass, so they can hold together this matter just by gravitational force. And we cannot do that on Earth because it would be too large, obviously. So what we have to do is to create a cage using magnetic fields that traps this plasma, which is the state of matter that is so hot that it can produce fusion reactions in an efficient way. So that means for long enough and hot enough for it to fuse and therefore produce energy for us. Now, Dr. Wenman explained some of the other challenges that they face in trying to adapt the reaction happening in the sun so that it works here on Earth. So nuclear fusion is a big challenge. So the sun does it using gravity. So the sun's massive and it burns at about 15 million degrees in the sun, which is still very, very hot, of course. But to do it on Earth, we need to get the plasma, as it's called, these kind of fundamental particles. So basically, we rip the atoms into their bits, and that forms this sort of gaseous phase called a plasma. And to get those nuclei, the the centers of those atoms to fuse together, the hydrogen nuclei to fuse together, we need to, to force them together because, of course, they have positive charges. And those positive charges, anyone who's played with magnets will know, they repel each other. You have to put huge forces to get them close enough to get those two nuclei to fuse. So the sun does that with gravity. We have to get up to 10 times the heat. So we have to get up to 150 million degrees in one of these machines to to get that to happen. And that's difficult. And you obviously need to contain that plasma. It needs to be, in this case, confined by magnets so that it doesn't touch anything. Because obviously, if something that's 150 million degrees touches anything, it just melts. So let's just do a recap. The scientists create a plasma of hydrogen atoms and particles to make the reaction work. They heat that to over 150 million degrees Celsius, that's 10 times hotter than the sun, in a tokamak, a large metal donut. But to make sure that that super hot gas doesn't touch the sides and just melt everything, they suspend it in midair using massive magnets. They then force those super hot hydrogen atoms together, like trying to force two positive magnets together, to fuse them and create helium, energy, and a small amount of relatively short-lived radiation. And that, effectively, is what the team at the Jet Lab, drawn from all over the world, have built. A machine right at the forefront of what we are currently capable of. But the team at Jet weren't trying to prove that fusion works. We already know that from previous tests at Jet and elsewhere. 
that show the tech is possible. What they set out to demonstrate, however, is that you can overcome one of the major challenges that we currently face if we want to make this a commercial energy source of the future. All that superheating of gas, the magnets to suspend and create the pressure to force the atoms together, that's all really energy intensive in itself. Until now, we have not been able to produce more energy from fusion than it takes to power the reaction. Now, of course, a power station that takes more energy to run than it creates isn't a very useful power station. But in that five-second test, the scientists created more energy from the reaction than ever before. Dr. Fasoli was part of the team at JET when they set the previous record for power production by a fusion reactor in 1997. He talks us through this latest test, but also the difference from the one that he was part of 25 years ago and what's been happening since. What happened was that after 25 years, we have had another set of experiments using the real fuel that will be used for fusion reactors. And we had set at that time the record fusion power obtained on Earth and uh, fusion energy in a plasma experiment. This time we have broken our own record. So we have obtained almost uh, twice as much energy in a single experiment lasting a few seconds. But even more importantly, I would say, in conditions that are similar to those we anticipate for a real energy producing reactor, namely in the presence of the materials of the wall, because as you can imagine, the materials of the bottle that contains the star are crucial elements of the reactor itself, in materials that are the ones that we anticipate for a reactor, a real energy producing reactor. So it's a major breakthrough insofar that significant amounts of energy were produced from real fusion reactions. But again, more importantly, because that was done in conditions that are really the ones they anticipate for a fusion reactor. And to get to those conditions, to get to the performance we have achieved, we had to overcome some uh, uh, hurdles on the way. So we have also demonstrated that we have the capability of overcoming those hurdles in the future. So that test at JET was the closest we've come to conducting what you might call a real-world condition experiment, the ones that will hopefully one day exist inside a nuclear fusion power station. So Dr. Wenman breaks down what it is that the JET test actually produced. So JET's it was a world record, that's the first thing to say. So they got the most energy out of a fusion reaction that's ever, ever happened on Earth. It was only five seconds. It was only 60 megajoules, which isn't actually a huge amount of energy. But they were producing energy at about 11 megawatts. And that's so a watt is energy per second. In layman's terms, that five second test produced enough energy for about 60 kettles to boil water, which isn't very much but it was producing it at 11 megawatts, a rate that, if sustained, could power quite a few homes. So typically, if you were powering a home, 11 megawatts might power about 20,000 homes, albeit this was only for five seconds. But you could see that if you could sustain it for longer, and that was what they were trying to prove, no one had really ever sustained that sort of level of power for even five seconds, that you know, if you could get that up to an hour and then days and then years then you're producing enough power to power homes on a significant scale. So what's next? Well, the team at JET will continue to test and fine-tune some of the figures, but the real test comes later in the decade. Another much larger tokamak is under construction in the south of France that scientists hope 
can build upon what Jet has proven to demonstrate that this can be done at much larger scales. The next step is, is another experimental reactor, the ETA project, which means the way that will come online, hopefully in about 2026. They will start doing the same sort of experiments that we saw in JET probably about 10 years later, about 2035 is the plan. And because it's so much bigger, it's got 10 times the volume. Whereas in JET, we were actually injecting energy in to produce this 11 megawatts. The idea in ITER with the bigger volume is that it will produce 10 times the amount of energy, which will again be a massive breakthrough. And that will be a huge news when they do that. That will then prove that fusion can produce energy. And then beyond that, they need to work out how to get that energy out and into a grid system. And so there's a yet another project to come online after that, which is called DEMO. And DEMO would be the demonstration reactor, which is due about 2050. So it's, it's, not, it's not that near term, but it's getting very real now. Dr. Fasoli said that the ITA reactor will also test the next crucial stage in the fusion reaction. With the larger quantities of hydrogen mix being used in the ETA reactor over longer periods, the scientists hope they will reach what they call ignition. That's where the plasma reaction will create enough heat needed to maintain that 150 million degree temperature. That will push us a step closer to creating more power than we use in the generation process. It's a new regime that we need to learn how to control and how to optimise. So for JET in 2022 to the ITER experiments in the 2030s, there is a final step before the commercial construction of fusion reactors, assuming that all goes well. ITER is not the last step because ITER will demonstrate that we can do fusion technologically and scientifically and that it is safe. But it will not demonstrate yet that we can do it at a level that's compatible with, if you like, with commercial deployment of reactors. For that, we need a further step, which in Europe we refer to as DEMO, for demonstration reactor, which will uh, demonstrate a, an electrical gain, you know, a real engineering gain that's significant enough in order for fusion power to be sold, it will demonstrate that we can do reliably the production of, of energy from fusion, you know, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year for several years, and that we can sell electricity at a price that's not incompatible with the markets, because that's also an essential element. This process is all the European development taking place. A joint initiative that Dr. Fasoli stresses is truly open, multinational and collaborative led by the European Union. But it's not the only one taking place. As well as its involvement through JET, the UK is establishing its own tests in the coming years. China and the US also have national programmes, as do others. And now, as the tests like JET bring us closer to proving the concept, more and more private companies are raising funding and looking to get in on nuclear fusion. Both Dr. Fasoli and Dr. Winman say that this will help in the quest to overcome the last hurdles, speed up the development and ultimately hasten the commercial nuclear fusion future. Dr. Winman says the governments have already invested billions over the last few decades in the research, and there is funding earmarked to see this through, but with greater investment they could potentially cut that timeline a bit for getting a demonstration reactor by the 2050s. But where does this leave us? As we said at the start of the podcast, countries around the world are committing to be carbon neutral, that's not adding more CO2 to the atmosphere, or carbon net zero, that's cutting CO2 emissions to their lowest level and offsetting what remains, by the middle of the century. Among the world's largest economies, 
Finland leads the way with plans to be carbon neutral by 2035. Iceland and Austria by 2040, Germany and Sweden by 2045. All of that needs to happen before the Europeans plan to have their demonstration fusion reactor in place. Now, it's possible that breakthroughs elsewhere could see fusion coming earlier, but Dr. Wenman says it's best not to cling to the hope that fusion can solve all of our climate problems. If you're going for net zero 2050, you're probably, my gut feeling is that this is not going to help with that particular target. But he points out that the battle to stop climate change isn't just about rolling back emissions that we make today but finding alternatives for developing nations who would otherwise become major polluters as their economies advance. This, off the bat, is where fusion could come in. And this is key. While developed nations account for nearly 80% of the world's CO2 emissions, it's not just a conversation happening here. It's mostly Western nations that produce most of the CO2. The countries in Africa, they really per capita don't produce much CO2. But as they transition into future technologies, this could be the technology that Africa uses to make sure that they don't become a big CO2 producer as we go from 2050 to, you know, the next century. So it will have a big impact and you can never have enough of this clean energy. And it is basically limitless. If we get this going, all you need is some hydrogen atoms as fuel it doesn't produce much in the way of waste. It doesn't produce carbon dioxide. It's, it's limitless, clean energy 24-7. So the renewables, as good as they are, they can't do the 24-7 thing. Nuclear power has always been able to do that, whether it's fission or fusion. The US Energy Agency has long warned that without making renewables and alternative energy sources available cheaply to developing countries, their CO2 production could dwarf that of the world's largest economies by 2040. In 2021, the UAE became the first country in the Arab world to produce nuclear energy when it switched on the Baraka nuclear fission power plant. But it's also investing massively in solar and wind, not just at home, but also across the Middle East and elsewhere. A UAE firm is behind a huge $1.5 billion wind farm in northern Scotland. Dana Hamad is a nuclear engineer and a sustainability consultant in the UAE. She spoke to us about why the Emirates, one of the world's largest producers of oil, is investing so heavily in renewables and leading the way in nuclear power in the Middle East. So to achieve a carbon neutral future and tackle climate change, electricity production must be completely decarbonized, which requires a combination of different green energy sources working alongside each other to reduce greenhouse gas. As the UEE's economy grows, the UEE requires more electricity to power various sectors and maintain its rapid economic growth. With the increasing electricity demand, the UEE turned to nuclear energy after conducting extensive studies, as the UEE has currently committed to net zero target by 2050, nuclear is an ideal answer. When all the four uh, units of Baraka Power Planet are fully operational, it will produce up to 25% of the UAE's electricity while preventing the release of 21 million tons of carbon emissions. That is the equivalent of removing 3.2 million cars of the UAE's roads each year. 
It's not just the UAE that's looking at this. Dana explains that Saudi Arabia and Egypt are also investing in nuclear fission. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has adopted the construction of two pressurized tight water reactors, and it is now working to implement the construction of its first nuclear plant. The Kingdom have earlier confirmed that their nuclear energy program would begin with the two reactors totaling 3 to 4 gigawatts, and it will later evaluate the possibility of expanding its nuclear energy sector based on its needs. The UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain and others have all also pledged to cut carbon emissions. And Egypt is hosting the 2022 COP Global Climate Summit and aims to put the needs of the developing world high on the agenda when world leaders gather in Sharm el-Sheikh in November 2022. The Middle East and Africa combined currently produce around 10% of the global CO2 emissions. And Ms. Hamad explains rapidly developing countries are already seeking new and powerful forms of power generation that don't increase that share. But in many places, nuclear fission remains many years, if not decades, away. They lack the infrastructure and the systems to build and maintain nuclear fission power. But these states could well be the winners from the development of nuclear fusion, even if it's not ready in time to help us change our energy production and avert the worst impacts of climate change before the middle of the century. As Dr. Wenman also noted, it's not a one-time thing. Decarbonise energy production now and then we're good from then on out. This is also about how to adapt our energy production to meet increasing demand well into the next century. The road ahead is long. And while we're travelling down it rapidly, many of those who have pioneered the research are very likely to have long retired before the first commercial fusion reaction starts flooding national grids with electricity. Still, Dr. Wenman says that reality is drawing near. They've always joked that fusion's been 30 years in the future. I don't think it is now. I really think that we are starting to to face the engineering challenges, and they are engineering challenges, and they're really happening. You can see it in the building of the, the ITER reactor in South France. And I think in the next 10 to 15 years, you'll genuinely see fusion energy more than break even, so get more energy out than it's put in, which has always been its promise. And once we get to that point, then it's just a commercialization problem. How do we build these reactors? Where do we build them? What sort of things do we need to worry about when we build them? But those are challenges which are easily overcomable. So we're getting close, I think, is the answer. For Dr. Fasoli, the quest to crack the fusion reaction is about more than just science or generating power. It's a testament to what can be done through cooperation. Hundreds of scientists all over the world sharing research, governments funding research to solve the hardest challenges of our time not for some narrow nationalistic goal or any strategic or military advantage, but to bring the world a brand new, safe, clean and powerful energy source that could fundamentally change the way that we live, work and play. International cohesion and cooperation with no borders and no secrets is essential to an endeavour of this kind because this is really one of the things that mankind has to do, to find a new source of energy that be clean, available for everybody and compatible with sustainable development. Thanks this week to Dr. Mark Wenman, Dr. Ambrogio Fasoli and Dana Hamid. I'm James Haynes-Young and this week we were produced by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison. If you want to get all the latest episodes of Beyond the Headlines, hit subscribe in your podcast app. <laughs>